Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. This is a special edition of Powerhouse Politics uh, featuring Corey Lewandowski, former campaign manager for Donald Trump, David Bossie, former deputy campaign manager for Donald Trump. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. You guys have this new book out, Let Trump Be Trump. And I- I've got to tell you, this is a book that it, I mean, you guys, I wouldn't call it quite a tell-all, but, but you don't hold back. I mean, you, we, 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 we hear you pull the curtain back. We hear about what was going on during the early days of the campaign, uh, right up till the end, some of the infighting on the campaign. You don't hold back with that. But I want to ask you about one pivotal moment. It was that moment at the second debate. The Access Hollywood tape had just broken two days earlier. And you guys make, and, and, and you're not with the campaign anymore, but you are certainly uh, 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 watching from a very close vantage point. But you're right there, Dave. And you decide to bring in the Clinton accusers. There's Paula Jones. There's uh, Juanita Broderick. Uh, tell us, what was behind that decision? And did every, was, was it debated internally? Was everybody on board? You know what? Uh, it was debated uh, a little bit, but it was just unanimous. Uh, once we had a conversation, it was it, Steve Bannon's uh, idea and creation. Uh, we I, I, we take um, what I call Billy Bush weekend and we detail it in the book. And that's what I think you're referring to is this uh, in St. Louis. We wanted to change the conversation. We wanted to... To, to remind the American people that Bill Clinton was an abuser of women while he was in the White House. And we believe Hillary Clinton was an enabler. And we wanted to say, hey, let's not, this is not just a one-sided uh, issue. And we need to make sure that uh, even though the president said what he said, there's locker room talk. There's a difference between that and action, which is what Bill Clinton was. But let's be clear. I mean, you tried to put these women in the family seats right there on the set of the debate. Sure. I mean, and you, and you almost pulled it off. Almost. <laughs> we were, we were, we were, it wasn't from a lack of trying. Uh, it was and literally, was on board. it was Everybody literally was... minutes before the debate yeah. started that yeah. we were still arguing with uh, um, the co-chairman of the debate commission saying, this is where we're going to put them. We're going to use our four seats. And they, they, we went back and forth. And of course they ended up sitting right in the front row instead, but it was a, it was a calculation for us to try to get into the Clinton camps head. And really, I think it worked. And, and, and let me ask you one, before we get into some more details and some of the really incredible stories that you guys tell here. This is a book where you do pull back the curtain. We learn a little bit about the president's uh, eating habits. Uh, <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of McDonald's in there. And, and, and like I said, I mean, you, you're very harsh on, on some of the people that, that were involved with this campaign, some of the people that went to the White House. Did you get sign-off from the president before deciding to, uh, to write this book? Did you, what, what, when did you first tell him about it? Did he give you the okay? Uh, Dave and I had the privilege of being in the Oval Office uh, back around Memorial Day weekend where we talked about writing this. And the reason we wanted to write the book is because we wanted the American people to understand what it was really like on the campaign and what Donald Trump's vision was, what he saw, and what he executed. And what we say is the <coughs> campaign was 99.9% Donald Trump, 0.01% the staff. And what the book talks about is his ability to see forward 
to do the rallies, to talk about issues that no one had talked about, illegal immigration, fair trade for a change, not free trade, but fair trade, putting America first, his ability to see what the American people wanted. We want to tell that story. And look, if everything was rosy on every campaign, it wouldn't be as exciting. But, but as you asked him. You, you said... You said we, we talked to him. We said, we want to write the book. He knew we were going to write the book. I had the privilege of presenting the president a copy of the book late last week. Um, this book shows the success of candidate Trump, what he accomplished, and shows how great his family is. That's what this book is about, but it shows the rise of the outsider and all the things that he overcame to become the 45th president of the United States. So we detail we detail in the book uh, election night, some of the big moments, the, the debate prep sessions, uh, you know, and the debates. And, and, and so we, we don't, we, right, it, it's a little bit unvarnished, but it's, it's a lot of fun. The ride was fun, so we tried to make the read fun. So it seems to me that a, a subtitle of the book could be a love letter to Paul Manafort. I mean, you guys, <laughs> you know, shower the praise on that campaign, Chairman. But I, I am struck by this. I mean, you talk about Manafort in the book. You talk about Rick Gates in the book. You talk about Reince and, and Sean Spicer coming into the White House. And you see a lot of problems with the fact some of the outsiders, the, the non-loyalists, end up on the inside. How do you square that with what you view as, as President Trump's judgment, that he went and hired, in your view, people that were disloyal, people that were bad, that served him poorly in the course of this campaign? Uh, let me start with, you know, uh, look, I think he made a great decision to hire his first campaign manager. Phenomenal <laughs> job. He's a great decision maker. And look, the second campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, phenomenal choice, right? Paul Manafort's role when he came onto the campaign was to be the delegate manager because we were still looking at the time of a potentially contested convention. The last time that had happened was prior to the invention of the fax machine, which was when Paul was involved in politics in 1976. So we put the mothballs, we take the mothballs away from Paul, we bring them into the campaign, and then you fast forward, and he did a fine job of making sure the delegates at the convention stayed fast and held true, and Donald Trump became the Republican nominee. But he had no core competency to run a campaign because he'd never been involved in a campaign. And what we saw in a very short window was once his role at the convention had been finished, President Trump, candidate Trump brought in Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, and Dave Bossy, the true campaign professionals, to take this campaign to the next level and win. That's what he did because that's what good managers do. But he still hi he hires Ryan's Priebus and Sean Spicer during the transition. You guys don't get jobs, they do. No, and, and look, Ryan's... Reince and Sean had different jobs during the campaign. They were running the RNC. Reince Priebus did a phenomenal job, an incredible job, of re reinventing the RNC as chairman before uh, President Trump was a candidate. What he did to raise money and build that apparatus is second to none. And then Reince's job of of debate prep. Really his singular focus was trying to, look, nobody stepped on that stage and delivered the debate performances but Donald Trump. But Reince and Chris Christie, we credit with really helping lead the debate prep team. Um, and without them, without their assistance, he wouldn't have gotten there. And when the transition happens, the president is looking at Reince as a professional who has run the RNC and helped run the ground game with Katie Walsh. A phenomenal effort. I mean, just second to none, bar none, had never been seen before. And helped us win those close states of Michigan and Wisconsin and, and even Pennsylvania. It, it, was, it was an awesome thing. So 
you don't know states how that, that they done. didn't think you were going to win. By the, the way, well, states that right. were were incredibly close, and every, all the polling data. Look, we had these conversations, you know, leading up to the election. I was uh, trying to say this is our path to victory, and nobody believed us. Uh, and so th- these things are not surprises. But look, the White House always has, in every administration, in that first year, changeover: Barack Obama, George Bush, Ronald Reagan. It's it's historic because. No matter how good you want it to be, the chemistry and the makeup of the White House staff can change, and that's, an, that's a fine thing. I want to ask about the, the role of the press in this, because there's one very colorful passage in the book that struck me. Uh, you, you talk about the press following around President Trump, or candidate Trump, as a waddle of deranged penguins slurping down pickled herrings. Now, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, that's right. Waddle <laughs> of Johnny doesn't even like herring. <laughs> <laughs> I do, but that's okay. Uh, but, but you also go on at length about fake news and about, about President Trump or about the, the, the press trying to bring him down with unfair stories. How can it be both? How can the press be following him around like deranged penguins and, and, and falling for all Easily. the tantalizing hints, but also be fake? For the first time in modern political history, the press needed the candidate more than the candidate needed the press. Donald Trump was a ratings driver. You look at the presidential primary debates, right? The largest debates ever. You look at the general election debates, the largest debates ever. That wasn't because, with all due respect to Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, people weren't tuning in to see them. They were tuning in to see Donald Trump. And every word that candidate Trump said was hung on by the press, analyzed, detailed, litigated. And, you know, we saw this because... The president earned $4 billion in earned media coverage because of his ability to drive a narrative. He came down to Washington, D.C. to do a press conference, and you remember what he did? He had all these Medal of Honor recipients who came out and spoke on his behalf, and the press just waited and waited and waited for him to come out and say, Barack Obama was born in the United States. After 30 minutes of having these Medal of Honor recipients praise candidate Trump, he walked up to the stage and he said, and by the way, Barack Obama was born in the U.S., thank you very much, boom, gone. But the press for 30 minutes just hung on every single word. It was waiting. carried live. It, it was, was carried, carried live. live. So, so breaking news. But how do you square that with, with your argument that there was fake news in this oh, campaign? So, so you're saying he got a free ride from the press. No, no, no. Well, you said $4 million free. Let me give you this example. We write about this in the book, Let Trump Be Trump. Donald Trump did 700 interviews with the New York Times. Not 700 interviews in the campaign. 700 interviews with the New York Times in a two-year window. That means basically every day he was on the phone doing an interview. He was the most accessible candidate I would, ever. I would agree with that. But you're saying he won in part because he got such... Well, look, of the, the, course. Part of it was because... So what's your he, complaint with the media? Because the media treats him very unfairly. Because right. what they have done... Look, look, look we can look just at... Look at let, let me just give things. you one example this week. Just one example this week. There was a story this week that Bob Mueller's investigation had subpoenaed records at Deutsche Bank that were going to look into the Trump family and the Trump organization's financial transactions. That story gets permeated, not by you guys, but by many other media outlets across the spectrum, only to find out six hours later the Mueller team comes out and says, absolutely 100% false. Look, that is detrimental to the president, and that is what we saw on the campaign all the time. Stories that weren't accurate. And, And I'll tell you this, Jonathan, you know this. I would get a call from the press, and they'd say, we have it for a fact, this is the case. I'd say... Corey Lewandowski, campaign manager, says it's false. Donald Trump, the candidate, I'll give you the phone, says it's false. I said, yeah, but we've got three sources. Well, the three sources are full of crap. They make it up. And when you have first people accounts who are saying the sources and the stories aren't right, there should be an obligation by the media not to run them. Does President Trump ever lie? Look, I don't know. My kids lie. I don't know. Here's what I tell everybody. (laughs) Tell the truth. You'd be better off. But look, 
I, I think that's a very difficult question because if we want to talk about lying, we need to talk about the severity of the lies. And those lies include Hillary Clinton to the FBI right. and Huma Abedin and Cheryl Mills to the FBI, but, but which are felonies. But, but there's reporters Clinton. that do it too. Come on, guys. We, we know what's gone on in the last just week of two major stories of, of, of reporters getting it wrong about the president, setting a narrative, telling the American people, having other people, other TV personalities, Go on and repeat those lies. The market crashes 350 points on a lie. And so we all know what this is about. We all, you guys can't ignore the fact that the president's correct. Now, does, does, does the press do a great job in covering the American political scene across the board and do a good job? Absolutely. But we all understand that the president is under a scrutiny and he's under attack by the left. He's under attack by the Democrats, the, the leadership in the House and the Senate every minute of every day. He can't do anything right in their mind. And then we see these stories that are perpetuated and they have impact. And what we try to say is this is why the president speaks the way he does, uses Twitter to get right past, to not have a filter through the media, and he speaks directly to the American people. And that's what's made him effective, and that's one of the reasons he won. So, but, but can I ask you, um, when, when, when you look overall at this, at this campaign, one thing, I mean, you, like, you do pull back the curtain. One thing we do see is that Donald Trump has a temper, and it's at repeatedly been aimed at you two guys at different times. Um, <laughs> and rightfully so. And well, 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 so bring us, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, and you know, what, what, what is it, what is it that sets him off and what is it like to be the recipient of, 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 of a Donald Trump when he is lost his temper and he is angry at you? Look, Jonathan, I can tell you this. Um, he's what I call tearing my face off, right? He's done it many times. Yeah. And you know why? Because he is a perfectionist. He demands and deserves perfection. And when I fail or the campaign team fails him, um, he is not shy about letting me know that. And that's okay. When he walks onto a stage and the microphone doesn't work, that's not a fault of Donald Trump. That's a fault of the campaign and the team. And he calls people out and he holds them accountable. That's what makes you a better person, a better staffer, a better manager down the road. And he expects perfection. He deserves perfection because every day he woke up, he gave us perfection. He never complained about the travel schedule. He never complained about how many events. He never complained about how many times we asked him to do things or sign things or take pictures. He just did it. He was amazing. And when he asks the staff to be as good as him, he doesn't ask them to be better. He says, be as good as me. Work as hard as I do. Don't work harder. Keep the same hours I do. He wasn't asking us to go up on which, stage. Which was always on. Look, right. and, yeah, and he's yeah. got a Jonathan, motor. He's got he a motor that keeps going. He would go up on stage going. for six hours a day at the end of the campaign. Six different events, four time zones. He doesn't ask us to do that. He just says, make sure when I go up there, the microphone works. The staffing is right. The lighting is right. Those are reasonable expectations. The room is full. And if you can't get that done, then you deserve to have your face ripped off because he is working so hard every and, day. And let me just say this. In, in our book, you know, uh, let Trump be Trump's a lot of things. And we do bring, you know, pull back the curtain so that they, people can see election night and, and the debate preps and the debate and all of the different things. But one of the things that we talk about is the warm side, the kind side, the, the generous side of Donald Trump. The, the Towards side, you and your family. To, no, no, that's no, right, no because us and other staffers. I mean, right. look, I got introduced in because I was raising money for Children's Hospital. And Steve Wynn introduced me and said, Donald Trump's going to help you. And he did. 
This is in 2010. Yeah. Long before, nothing to do with politics, no fanfare, no press needed. But, but describe that, that one really odd scene on, on, on the plane where, uh, where he, he gets mad at Hope Hicks. Uh, then, you know, uh, now the communications director at the White House because she forgot the steamer for his suit. Look, we all did everything. Let's just yeah. say that was, we were detailing a specific day. Hope happened to do it that day. But George Jujikos. You had the steamer too? Yeah, no, no. We all did everything. That's the thing about this campaign. It was a small group of people. You guys know what a small group. Yes, Hillary Clinton was. had 900 people. Well, you got the McDonald's in the early days. I did. I got the McDonald's. I did whatever the candidate asked. You say, hey, Corey, go get dinner. You got dinner. Hey, Corey, run to McDonald's and get this. Whatever. There was five people. The delineation of work was only between no, so many true. people. And so, look, that's not... Please don't take that as pejorative to Hope Picks. It is the type of mindset that the five and six and ten people had in the campaign, which was whatever it takes to get something done, you do. And I remember very vividly, we were in Las Vegas, and uh, we were about to go on, and Mr. Trump needed the suit clean. I said, George, get on the suit. And George Ajikos, who was one of the five people, who's the director of advance, guy, was yeah. over there steaming Mr. Trump's suit because you just jumped in. There were no personalities. We had a singular focus. Give him the best of our ability and help him get elected president. And that is unlike any campaign and, I've and, ever and, been. And by the way, we detail of. in the book, that's the way the campaign was run at the beginning. And that's the way it was at the end in the last couple of months. In the last 10 weeks while I was there, it was, a a all, staff, it was an uh, all yeah. hands on deck yeah. situation. But there was still only five, sure. six of us on the plane right. and running. Look, we ate fast food and people love to talk about the fast food in this book, but the reality was we never sat down for a meal. <laughs> we were always moving. You guys, I mean, the, the the press corps that was trying to stay with us, you understood you were unfortunately probably eating a lot of the same things because we always were moving. The president's motor was nonstop. He would wake up and be on the road. We'd be on the road from dawn till dusk. And it was a never, and by the way, towards the last few weeks of the campaign, this guy would do, as Corey was saying, and, and we detail it in the, the schedule in the book, and that's what the, the rallies, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people packed into these arenas. It's like a rock concert. He comes out there and, it deliver, and he delivers. He never wanted to let them down. And it's one of the reasons, look, he was filling arenas of 15, 20,000 people five, six times a day. And Hillary Clinton was having trouble filling a, cafe a high school cafeteria. Let's be honest. We looked at that and we saw that as part of the dynamic. And we knew we were on to something. When we were going to Pennsylvania and these other states, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, and we knew we were, uh, we just had, he had figured out something. It was something that was in the water and that's what he tapped into, and that's what the polling data didn't say. You mentioned in the book something, fast forward to the Memorial Day meeting that you, that you mentioned earlier. It sounded like you guys were set up to get jobs in the White House. That's, Reince Priebus says it's a done deal, it's all, it's all set. You get in there, he actually wants to talk about something different. But there, he talks about leaks, right? But he also, <laughs> right. there also is, there's a window for you guys to go inside and work in the White House. You decide not to. Is that a permanent decision as far as you guys are concerned? Could you see yourselves working on the inside? And why just say no? Why aren't you on the inside now? Well, let me, let me just say that that meeting on Memorial Day in the Oval Office was him kind of saving us uh, from ourselves. Because uh, you were coming we, in. We, you had we agreed to come in. We, well, we, we, you were going to be the war room guy. Yeah. You were going to be deputy chief of staff. Yeah, Ryan's, look, Ryan's and Steve Bannon, who tried to really do a, you know, a, a huge Right job. They they were under a lot of pressure. We're looking to have us come in. 
But the president said, look, I'm, I'm unhappy with the current situation. And if there aren't changes soon, I'm going to make some changes. And he didn't want us, we took it as he didn't want us to be victims of that. And that's an incredibly gracious thing for him to have done. He was like, you us. don't want to come in here because I'm about to fire a bunch of people. That's, that was basically that was, what that he was, was, that was possible, the message. Yes. Yeah. Look, what, what this book talks about, too, and we don't get enough credit for it, we detail the, mon- the number of hours we flew on that airplane, mm-hmm. the number of stops we made. No, I we bought 998,000 <laughs> yeah. gallons of jet fuel. 998,000 yeah. gallons of jet fuel. We put that plane down in 45 states, 722 different segments we did, you know, 233 cities. We did this with two pilots. Not two sets of pilots, right. two individuals. That is the mindset of the people who work for Trump is you can do more with less. And that's, you know, just to go back to the story, Everybody did everything. They didn't let me fly the plane, but I probably could have had enough hours by the time I was done. That's how small of a team it was and how hard he worked. And us going into the White House, uh, is it permanent we don't go in? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Uh, Dave has young kids. I've got four young kids. I left my family for two years. You guys have made a lot of sacrifices too. Uh, It's too selfish right now for me to go and do the job of working inside the government, which is uh, the Super Bowl, the World Series... And the Stanley Cup all rolled into one if you're a political operative. To go and do that is too selfish for me because I can't say to my family, I just need two more years or three more years to be away from you because my kids are between six and ten years old and I've already been gone for two years and a half. So let Trump be Trump talks about the family dynamic and where Dave and I both come from. Two blue collar guys who were at a front row seat in history, who had a historic rise to see the world change. And Dave and I talk about it. We're very candid in that book about how special it was for us. The Island of Misfit Toys is how you describe the, uh, the initial. So, so, so let, me, let me just ask you, I know you guys have to go, uh, final question. In that Memorial Day meeting, you asked the president how he's doing, and he says, I'm doing fine, my staff sucks. I think was the rough quote. Am I, do I have that correct? Are we allowed, am I allowed to say that on, on, a, on a podcast? <laughs> if oh, if you're the one who says the worst thing, I guess I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. Um, so uh, two-part two question here. One, how is the staff doing now? How do you grade the current White House staff and how they are serving the president? And then I want to hear from both of you. Who's going to be the next and the second to go? And I'll give you a couple choices. You can, you can pick Rex Tillerson. You can pick Jeff Sessions. You could pick... Uh, Jared decided to go back to New York. Who do you think is the next uh, uh, to leave? Well, I can, I can tell you, I think that uh, the, the current chief of staff, General Kelly, is, is, is really taking a different management approach. Than Rice? Yeah. Than, well, you know, look, the freewheeling aspect of that White House was, you know, was something, uh, you know, to, to, to really look at. But the president loves to get lots of information from lots of people. He loves that. And so this, the, the general has taken a different tact, and he has buttoned up the, the building and the management style. I think the president has taken to it, and I think that they're, they're working as a great team, it seems. So I am, uh, I, I'm perfectly happy with how it is going. Uh, you know, the Are you guys Trump talking Trump, to, to the president the, the, less now because of the, the Kellys uh, kind of controlling who gets in and out? You know what? I, I don't talk about how I, okay. how I manage your, my communications. Look, I have a privilege of, of talking to the president every time he calls me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Finish, finish what you're saying. So. No, I just th- look, I think that, the, that this White House is now being run in a way. I think they, the, the title of this book didn't have anything to do with the White House staff or anything like that, but 
They Some would argue that Kelly's they, not letting Trump well, be Trump. Well, they are learning each day of how they need to let Trump be Trump. Mm -hmm. He's the greatest communicator. He understands the message. He has the best political instincts of anybody that I've seen in my lifetime. And he understands the pulse of the American people, what they want and what they're looking for. And that's the reason he got elected. Uh, look, I think the staff is doing a great job. I really do. Uh, I think there needed to be a change. The president talked about that on Memorial Day. He is working exceptionally hard. Uh, I think Gerald Kelly has come in and brought order from chaos. And to be fair to Ryan's Priebus, having a three-headed monster at the top of the food chain right. uh, is, you know, the triumvirate. No, three <laughs> chiefs means nobody's the <laughs> yeah. chief. You're when not you report, set up to succeed. Yeah. When you and Ryan's was the third name mentioned on that press release announcing it, I believe. Well, so, look, when you report to multiple people, it means nobody's the boss. Let me be clear. Gerald John Kelly is the chief of the staff. There's no question about that. Okay, we're out of time, but you didn't answer my question, so I'm going to give you one You're more right. chance. Who's the next to leave? I have no idea. I, I really don't. I, it, this is uh, a tough fishbowl to work in. You guys cover this. This is a very difficult, complicated uh, place. The world is in chaos in a lot of places. Uh, it is tough to be away from your family. So if Rex Tillerson says, I've done this for a year and I, it's time for me to go back to Texas, you know, or back to the corporate world, that's his decision. But I can tell you, uh, you know, I think the team is doing a great job. I look at what's going on in the world and, and I look at these courageous decisions on, on Jerusalem, uh, and, and, you know, other things that they're doing every day, getting the biggest, we haven't even talked about the tax reform package that the president, the biggest legislative accomplishment just, just last week. So we're, he's on the path. Still to got to pass, still has to pass the uh, conference. But we're almost, yeah, yeah, we're, almost we're there. getting there. We're getting what about you? You have experience in this. You know what it's like to be fired by Donald Trump. <laughs> I do. You, yeah. you, you, you can tell, you can read, you know, when something's coming. Look, let me tell you what I think my biggest criticism of the White House has been. They haven't filled jobs fast enough in the administration. Mm -hmm. The holdovers continue to stay there. So there's accountability mm -hmm. in that department. And I think there's accountability at the macro level of the political decisions which are being made because uh, I think there has to be a good political operation. What I don't see, and this is not pejorative to anybody who's in the building, is I don't see the Karl Rove, the uh, David Axelrod, that, that top political operative who is helping craft the political decisions going into what will be a very competitive 2018 cycle mm -hmm. for members of the House and the Senate. And ultimately, if the president is looking to be reelected in 2020, that person who's focused on those efforts. And I think you might see some changes coming. Wasn't in that, that going to be your job? Look, I have a job. I got a great job on the outside. So I'm very happy. <laughs> and that's right. and to be honest with you, we like being his support staff outside that we are messengers for him and and we think we, we can be very effective from the outside, so we like it. All right. Corey Lewandowski. Thank you. Dave Bossy, thank you for joining us. We really thank appreciate you, it. Appreciate Here on Powerhouse it. Politics Sir, once again. Thanks. The book is Let Trump Be Trump. We'll see you again next week.